From KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide, this is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, Nick. Hey, Taylor. I guess it's just me and you. Yep. It's Thanksgiving week. How's the riding these days? This is a great time of year to ride in Southern California. It's cooler. The only problem, we've had Santa Ana winds lately. And the other day I was riding with a buddy and we had some pretty difficult headwinds and sidewinds. And you have to wear glasses for debris. But otherwise, this is a great time of year to ride. It gets dark in Los Angeles about 435. So you have to plan your days a little differently. But I love the night riding coming home from UCLA, and I love the long riding that I can do when I have the time. Oh, yeah. You teach at UCLA. Yeah. It's a nighttime class, and so I ride home at 11 at night. And I got to tell you, that's one of my favorite times of the day. Probably safer. Yeah. Yeah. I'm well lit, and I see cars from a mile away. Are you getting much riding in or not? I'm pretty car dependent over here. I drive to drop my kid off at school. I drive to work. Could you e-bike that or not? Well, it's a 40-minute drive, so e-bike, I don't know. It'd be really early. Yeah, yeah, it's a 40-minute drive. Wow. Yeah, car dependency. Yeah. Hey, what's the price of gas in Massachusetts? It's 390s, I think. In LA, it's about 529. But in Europe, it's like $8. A liter. Exactly. (laughs) Speaking of that, we got some good news. RSTechnica.com has written an article that e-bikes and scooters displace four times as much demand for oil as all of the EVs in the world. So that means that what we've been saying about EVs is true, that they're not the answer, that bikes are the answer. It saves a million barrels of oil a day. Is that right? That's what it says in Ars Technica, about 1% of the world's total oil demand. Saved by e-bikes. And we're just getting started with e-bikes. Listen, we talk about this all the time on the show, but the more infrastructure we build, the safer we make it, we'll move beyond that 1% or 2% of the population that's riding a bike or an e-bike, and we'll get to 8%. And then when we really connect our bike lanes and our infrastructure, we can get to 20 or 30%. And that's going to make a huge dent in how much oil we use. 20, 30% of people riding bikes instead of driving. Well, in some places, 60 or 80%. That's what it is in the Netherlands, yeah. In Utrecht, it's 90%. I've never been there, but I'd like to go. Well, that's where one of our guests was from, Chris the Bruntlets from the Dutch Cycling Embassy, and they're quoted later in Lindsay's segment coming up. Right. Well, Lindsay's been talking a lot about that, trying to create this idea where you have a livable city, a 15-minute city, where most everything you need is within a 15, 20-minute walk or a five or 10-minute bike ride. Yeah. Well, we're going to have that segment coming up, but there's other news. We have another study that shows that new look in SUVs, the blunt style. That front grill. Yeah. Even if the car is not an SUV, even a smaller car, if it has that flat grill, that's 26% more likely to kill a pedestrian or cyclist in a crash. Yeah. Because it hits you at your shoulders, at your chest, and it crushes your body. So that was the bad news. That's about cars. And then we had the good news about e-bikes and scooters. I also saw in biking in LA that the number of cycling deaths in Los Angeles has been grossly underreported. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago on the show that there were 13 or 14 cycling deaths in Los Angeles. 
And actually, the number is much higher. It's about 20 deaths. Yeah, 22 cyclists this year through October, just in LA. And I can only imagine that if it was underreported here, that those kinds of road fatalities are underreported elsewhere also, Detroit, Cincinnati, New York, Massachusetts, Portland. And it wakes us up to this idea that these huge SUVs with these big grills going faster are hitting and killing pedestrians and cyclists at a greater number. In New York, there's a bill going through the Senate to tax heavier, bigger vehicles based on their weight to try to have them pay for some of the damage that they're doing. Yeah. Well, we have a new little segment with our lawyer friend. Laying down the law. How's that for a title? I like it. Laying down the law. We want to look at all the different issues where the law comes into play with bike riding, whether it be a ticket or a crash. So I want to introduce to our listeners, Jim Pokras. Jim is a personal injury lawyer at the law office of Pokras and De Los Reyes. But more importantly, Jim's a cyclist. He's been practicing law for over 30 years, but he's been riding his bike for over 50. Jim, welcome to Bike Talk. Thank you for having me today. And I've been asked here today to talk about what happens when a person is injured in a bicycle collision. And it kind of reminds me of the fact that when I had an accident myself and somebody fell in front of me and I got injured, I didn't know what to do. And here I've been doing right. this for a long period of time. So I'm going to try to give you a thumbnail outline of what should happen if you do have a bicycle collision, whether or not you get hit by a car or if you hit some type of a pothole in the roadway, but when you're injured on a bicycle. First thing that you need to do is you really have to ensure your own safety to make sure that if you're in the middle of the road, that you get yourself out of harm's way and get yourself into a position where you're not going to be injured by some other vehicle or something. The next thing is call 911. I suggest doing that even though the police today won't come out on every single accident unless there's an injury, a visible injury. So when you call in, tell them that you were injured. If you are involved in a crash with a vehicle, the first thing that you need to do is make sure that you obtain information from the other person, their insurance information, their driver's license, if there were any passengers, just take out your iPhone and start taking some pictures. Take a picture of their driver's license or the license on their car in case they run away, their addresses or insurance information or vehicle registration. The next thing is to see if there was any witnesses to the crash. And if there are, make sure that you get that information down and that you also look around and see if there are any surveillance on cameras around that may right. have caught this. If you start having a conversation with the person that was involved that maybe hit you and you wanted to write down that it was their fault, they went through a traffic light or they opened their door, most of them won't talk to you. So here's a little trick that you can do on your iPhone. If you just start the video on it, it'll start picking up audio. And so you'll have them admitting that they were at fault if they did something like that, because after they leave the accident scene and they talk to their insurance agents, all of a sudden the stories seem to change. Another thing that I would suggest is an app on your cell phone called Voice Memo. So if you're talking to somebody, just turn it on and it'll pick up all the conversation. So if you need medical help, make sure that you get the proper medical help. If paramedics come, go to the hospital and get checked out and make sure that you're okay. The most important thing is to make sure that you're okay. From a legal standpoint, however, and if you're going to be making any type of a claim, the things that you should do once you leave the accident scene is to call your insurance company and report the collision to them. 
also write down and document everything um, on maybe a pad of paper so that you don't forget it. And the next thing that I would suggest, especially if you're injured, is that you contact a personal injury lawyer that specializes in bicycle crashes. If you're dealing with any insurance companies, they're there for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to take in premium and to pay out as little as possible on any claim that's made. And also, don't give any type of recorded statement to anybody because the insurance companies or the adjusters that are talking to you are experts in spinning, and you'll say something that you think is telling the truth, and they'll try to spin it. Let me ask you a question, Jim. Do you have the choice of not giving a recorded statement to the insurance company when they call you? Absolutely. You do not have to talk to them or give them any information or give them any kind of a recorded statement because anything you say, as they say, can and will be used against you in a court of law. So you come back and you say something again, like I said before, that you think is the truth. And then they try to spin it. Where were you looking? What were you doing? And it's just not worth it. The main thing you should be focusing on is your own health and making sure you get proper medical treatment and then making sure that you get proper legal representation to have you recover any type of compensation that you may be entitled to as a result of somebody else's negligence. And it sounds like really one of the main things that you talked about is just get evidence, take lots of pictures, record voice conversations, and really document what happened when and where it happened. Right. That's exactly true. Because when something like this happens, the adrenaline is going so much in your body. You don't know what to do. You don't know what to say. You don't know who to call. Just take a deep breath, get your iPhone out, and just make sure that you get proper information. Get their license plate, their driver's license, and then get proper medical treatment. That's why I said call 911 or if the paramedics come to get proper medical treatment. Well, let's hope that we or our listeners never have to do that because we've been talking a lot about the violence that is on the streets of not only Los Angeles, but all over the country. And it's directed many times at pedestrians and cyclists. So Jim Pokras from Pokras and De Los Reyes Law Office, thanks for coming on and giving us a heads up on how to handle a very difficult situation. It's my pleasure. And hopefully you don't have to remember all of this, but again, if it happens, just get as much information as you can. Well, that was really interesting. You know, something, Nick, that Lindsay talks a lot about, that she's not going to ride a bike on a street that has cars moving over 10 or 15 miles an hour. So she's been developing this idea of the Livable Communities Initiative, which is a 15-minute city, basically, where you create areas where there are no cars. Or if there is a car there, the car is a guest on that street, and it's only moving 9 or 10 miles an hour. And then hopefully you wouldn't need to call someone like Jim Pokras because you wouldn't be hit by the car. Let's listen to that segment with you and Lindsay. So for the past few years, our own Lindsay Sturman has been working with a group of experts, advocates, and professors from UCLA to understand the housing crisis. 15-minute cities are famous for a reason, because they work. Building residential housing above small shops on walkable, bikeable streets is a way to build housing that's affordable, can be beautiful, zero carbon, and it costs taxpayers nothing. We wanted to take apart the housing crisis and this possible solution and talk about maybe the most interesting part for our listeners. Bikes can play a huge role in solving the housing crisis. The humble bike we found is a key that can unlock housing. Bike Talk is at the center of all things, of course. And your interview with Henry Grabar, who wrote the book Paid Paradise, 
laid out the core issue in housing, which is the enormous role that parking plays in destroying our housing market and our housing supply. Parking, car storage ruins everything as the headline went in the Atlantic, right? Yeah. Parking is like this firecracker you throw into a pile of paper and it explodes and it shreds everything. And that's what parking does to housing. Death by a thousand cuts or by a thousand parking spaces, right? (laughs) Yes, exactly. It just clobbers housing in so many different ways. And I'll just give you a few. It costs $50,000 to $80,000 a spot to build parking. You need a huge parcel of land just to turn cars around. So you have to assemble multiple lots, which raises the cost of land by 40%. Often you have to rip down half a block and build underground parking. And you just rip down these stores and you might lose your beloved local retail to put in a big box store or a national chain. And that's just a whole nother problem. And then neighbors fight you. They don't want the height or maybe they just don't want the cars. And then fighting with the neighbors adds another 40% to the cost of housing. So building housing is a money losing proposition and one of the most expensive real estate markets in the country. And it also raises the rents, right? It can add $400 a month per parking spot to your rent. $800 a month you're paying just for parking. It's just inflating your rent that much, which is $10,000 a year for a family. So it's not profitable to build and it's not affordable once you do build it. It is next to impossible to build missing middle, affordable housing, attainable homeownership when it includes parking. We can build luxury, we can build subsidized, but the market really can't build missing middle at scale. Of course, there are always going to be exceptions. And that's what we need, the missing middle. So what happens when you remove the parking? When you remove parking from the equation, like you can do in a 50-minute city, the math suddenly works. You can build a three- to five-story building over a small shop on an underdeveloped commercial corridor. Every little shop could have 10 to 20 apartments above it. The housing can be affordable. It's missing middle, workforce housing. It can be technically affordable to moderate and low-income households. And this math only works when you take the parking out of the equation. But without parking, you need mobility. Like bikes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So before we get into the main topic of bikes, tell us about who you guys are. You're a civic group, H-O-D-G. Hangout Do Good. You can go to our website. Literally, it's Hangout Do Good. And we're a civic group. We're 3,500 members. And we door knock and we phone bank. And we've made 500,000 sandwiches for our unhoused neighbors since COVID. So we're basically just active in the community. Where did this idea come from? Two and a half years ago, the founder of our group, Jennifer Levin, formed a study group on housing. She called it the housing huddle. And we spent three months reading everything we could get our hands on about housing and talk to advocates. We talked to electeds to understand the issues. And one person in our group read thousands of pages of reports from the Turner Center at Berkeley that studies the cost of housing in California. We read papers from UCLA and it all led us to parking and then what it does to the math. But then we had to address the mobility <laughs> that's right. led us to the 15 minute city. Right. And then everyone looked around and said, does anyone know anything about mobility? <laughs> <laughs> they have to listen to bike talk. Exactly. So this is why we say that land use and transportation are connected, housing and mobility. Housing needs mobility. So first of all, what is mobility? The three legs of the stool of mobility are walking, 
transit and bikes. And bikes include micro mobility, trikes, adaptive bikes, cargo right. bikes, e-bikes, scooters, golf carts, yeah, yeah. Golf carts, nevs, neighborhood electric vehicles, skateboards. And walking is probably the most important because you want to be able to walk outside of your home. It should be safe and pleasant and you need to go walk to get things if you're not going to have a car on site. And so the thing you need is something called neighborhood serving retail. It's the small shops. You know, Jeff Speck, when he came on the show, he says in his book, The Walkable City, that a walk has to be useful, safe, comfortable, and interesting. And if you're going to live without a car, you have to have a grocery store nearby and maybe some restaurants and a bookstore, a pharmacy, the mail the shop, post office. Yeah. Coffee gym, shops, right? a gym, <laughs> a baker, right? A butcher. A butcher, right. And I joke a corner bar because people like Absolutely. to go to bars. It actually makes people happier if they can Where see a friend. everybody knows your name. They're always glad you came. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you know, that's what we call Aaronsville. I love that. Yeah. Aaron chaining, they sometimes call it. You chain together two or three errands when you go somewhere. Totally. So what's stopping us from having a good walkable neighborhood? Well, there are a lot of things, but the biggest is the streets. They're too wide. Cars are going too fast. It's dangerous. It's noisy and it's polluted. But if you slow the cars down, you can really make a street walkable, especially if you already have existing neighborhood serving retail, that those beloved legacy family businesses. They're called our historic main streets and historic villages. Really, Lindsay, every city was that way before the car was king. Detroit and Buffalo and Cincinnati, all the cities were built around 15-minute neighborhood. This really would work in not just old cities, East Coast cities, turn of the century cities, work in main streets across pretty much all of America. Right. In LA, we have so many. We have Lamarck Park, downtown Fairfax, Burbank, right. Fairfax, Ventura, um, Melrose, right near you, Beverly, downtown Culver City, right. Boyle Heights, Highland Park. It's it, endless. We have hundreds of them. We were a region of 400 neighborhoods connected by trolleys. That's our history. And believe it or not, everybody biked. The 101 was initially envisioned to be a bike path. Doesn't that just kill you? Well, the 110 was a bike path first. Oddly enough, that's the freeway that they closed just a couple weekends ago and opened it up to bicycles and walkers. And you did that on the podcast. Yeah. yeah. So then the cars came in and they pushed out the trolleys and we all know that story, but it also became so unsafe that no one felt comfortable walking or biking. Walking doesn't work for everything, right? You have long distances. You want to maybe carry groceries. You don't want to walk 20 minutes and carry bags of groceries back in the scorching sun. And right. you might have kids. You need to get them to school. You might need to get to work. You don't live exactly where you work. And that's where bikes come in. Yeah, but to get people to bike, it's got to be safe. And we're yeah. learning that the bike infrastructure that we've been building really only serves 1% to 3% of the population, the fit and the brave. Yeah. And households aren't made up of just the fit and the brave. You might have somebody who's fit and brave like yourself, but they might have a partner or parents or children who don't fit that category. So slowing the cars down to make it safe makes it more pleasant to walk, but it also means people will bike. And that expands our range for errands, right? Like I can bike to Trader Joe's. I do it all the time. It's a mile and a half away. It takes me five minutes. That's a 20 minute walk. Plus, on my bike, I have a rack and a pack on the back, and I can carry groceries. I can carry about $120 worth of groceries. Of course, that's including wine. <laughs> that sounds lovely. E-bikes expand our world even further. If we make it safe to e-bike, that is the radical change that's coming. Right. And we know from how fast they're selling that people want them. 
Three quarters of a mile is a 15-minute walk. Three miles is a 15-minute bike ride. Seven miles is a 15-minute e-bike ride. But remember, these are circles. So a seven-mile diameter radius, that's an enormous area. That's Cincinnati. (laughs) There you go. You have all of Cincinnati. And bikes also expand your access to transit. And transit is the third leg of the stool of mobility. The light rail, heavy rail, trams, trolleys, and most importantly, buses, the sort of workhorse of transit, and then bus rapid transit. LA has world-class transit infrastructure, our LA Metro. It has safety concerns because there's such low ridership. Traditionally, a TOD is a circle. You take a high-quality transit stop, like a metro stop, and you just draw a circle around it. And then you upzone that circle for housing, and you try to encourage builders and developers and property owners to just build a lot of housing inside that circle. It can work, but sometimes you have a challenge that people might have single-family homes. They don't want it upzoned, or maybe there's a park. You can't upzone it. So we are thinking, well, what if it's more of a linear TOD or a spoke. It's a street that directly connects to a transit stop. And then you upzone the street and you create- So you upzone one street within that circle. Yes. One street that tees into the transit stop. Which is basically what a 15-minute city is. Like Westwood, which is a street that runs right into UCLA, a major job and student center. There's a subway right there. There's lots of local shops, but not a lot of housing. Exactly. And 63,000 people drive in by car every day for work. And you can look at it on the census. U.S. Census actually has a map and shows where everyone's coming from. There are 10 people who drive three hours each way to work in Westwood. I mean, it's just astonishing that you spend six hours a day in the car. 20% of the students at UCLA, our premier public university, commute in. So they are desperately in need of housing and and it's already walkable. It's a college campus. So we have, I would say, five or six college campuses in LA that are perfect for this because it already has a culture of people who don't drive, students. And that's good for everybody, right? It helps with congestion. It helps with climate. It helps with safety on the street and air quality. And it makes it even better for the people that do have to drive. And if you live behind one of these, suddenly you're walking distance to a walkable neighborhood, classic Main Street. It ups your property values, actually, because walkability is the number one driver of real estate. So what are the steps? How do we get started? I think choosing the street is the most important because you want it to be in a job center. You want Mm -hmm. it to touch a high quality transit stop and you want the fine grain retail. We think those are the basic ingredients. And then you also want to make sure that it's not cinching an artery through the city. You have streets with three lanes going in each direction, four lanes of traffic going in each direction. So an 11 lane freeway through our city is probably not the right street to choose. It doesn't feel like a place you'd want to stroll or linger because there are just too many cars. It's an artery through the city. I think we're asking our streets to be too many things At the same time, it is an artery through the city and you don't want to slow the cars down to 15 miles an hour, nine miles an hour. And that's what you have to do if you want people to feel safe to bike, especially children. So part of what we've been doing at the livable communities is try to take apart how things work. We literally took apart mobility. How does mobility work? And I'll tell you, a lot of the information came from interviews on Bike Talk. It all comes back to Bike Talk, Lindsay. One concept that came from Bike Talk is that to make transit work, 
you have to be able to get there seamlessly. The path, whether you walk or bike, it has to be safe and pleasant. If you want a significant number of people to opt into that form of transportation, that transit, otherwise people, they'll just drive. But if it's pleasant and there's trees and there's pretty things to look at, people actually walk and bike further to get to that transit stop. And it seems small. I think these are the places we're falling down. We put a transit stop between a freeway and an 11 lane road. That might be the barrier that stops you from using that metro stop. And you wouldn't be able to talk on the phone while you're waiting for the train because it's too loud. Yeah, a huge problem. (laughs) There are math problems, right? The economics of housing and the speed of cars and the physics and how that relates to the fatality rate. So those are math problems. But then there are qualitative things that we're discovering. It may sound silly to talk about trees and bougainvillea and pretty architecture. If that affects a person's willingness to walk down a street to a transit stop and get you out of a car... Right. We started to realize you really have to pay attention to these small things, these small touches that make a place wonderful. And we're building our housing in our city and our streets. And why wouldn't we want it to be beautiful and nourishing and calming and meditative and a place where you want to linger and connect and build community? Because all these things, again, have a quantitative effect on our mental health and our physical health. And it affects our property values. As your walking score goes up, the value of your property goes up. I mean, it makes sense, right? So LCI actually took apart how mobility works. And then we built it from the ground up. So rather than trying to drop in a few changes to a street to make it work, we said, what should it look like? How do we build it from the ground up? And you get walkability from neighborhood serving retail, small shops, and slow cars, trees, a nice quality to your street. And then if you locate housing near a metro stop, and it's walkable, there's a seamless connection to that metro stop, then you have transit. And then if you really slow down the cars, then you get biking. And now you've got the three legs of the stool of mobility. We tried to find locations that had all of those elements. I'll just say them again. Neighborhood serving retail, near jobs and transit. The street is not an artery through the city with 11 lanes of traffic. It's a smaller street. It's a dead end street. It's a redundant street. And if you put three to five stories of housing, thousands of people can live car free. How bad do you want the mobility? What do you want the street to really look like? Is it going to still carry through traffic for people who don't live there, don't work there, aren't shopping there? They just want to shave 30 seconds off their commute. Or can we really give these streets over to people that live there? People that live there. Yeah. I think you have to phase it in. You can't go all in right away. If people want to live car free, I think the street should really be for them. Well, Lindsay, this sounds like a great idea to me. I love being in a 15 minute city. What's keeping us from doing it? Well, the opposition is people use the term NIMBY, not in my backyard, people who fight housing or fight bike lanes. We really talk to a lot of NIMBYs. And again, they don't like that term. And we want to really meet people where they are. We went into the lion's den and we talked to people and said, why are you fighting housing and what could you live with? And it was really an amazing experience because it turns out that 99.9% of people want a solution. Very few people will not get on board with something. We found that if the housing is three to five stories and it's not a tall high rise and it's gentle density and it's not going to bring traffic in, and it's beautiful architecture, I can count on my two hands the number of people who are dead set against it. People really embraced it. And the status quo really is that we've chosen to allow people to live on the streets, in tents, on sidewalks, under bridges, all over the city, and not just in Los Angeles, all over the country. 
I think that's such a good point. By not choosing a solution, we're choosing a solution. And it's exactly. more tense and more of this tragedy. One of the things we discovered is that there are four reasons you really have to do some form of a 15-minute city. And it's, as I said, housing. Parking mm-hmm. destroys the economics of the missing middle. Then there's the traffic. We are in gridlock and it's not going anywhere. We can't widen the streets. There's no solution other than to just get people out of cars. Air quality, the toxic tire dust, the microplastics flying off our tires with our heavy cars is giving us cancer and dementia. We have to do something. So it's not just gasoline cars. It's electric cars also, really. They're heavier. So it actually makes it worse. And then there's climate. The state of California is putting out reports saying we have to do something. We have to cut the number of car trips, the number of miles we drive by 25 to 30%. And that assumes we're doing the EV transition. You know, Lindsay, I would add to it public health. Remember, we had Bella Chu on the show, and she talked about how human beings have evolved to walk five to seven miles a day. And you can't do that if you're driving to and from your work. I would add to that kids who live in car-centric worlds have 40% higher rates of anxiety. Adults have 12% higher rate of depression. And they're saying it really has an impact on kids' cognitive development to not have freedom to roam and explore on their own because kids have to be in car seats, they have to be in cars for their own safety. So it touches so many more things than we realized. On Bike Talk, we've had years of interviews with experts from all over the world contributing to the Livable Communities Initiative. Here's Chris Bruntlett of the Dutch Cycling Embassy. Coming to the Netherlands, as you see firsthand the types of people that can cycle and will cycle when the conditions are correct. That's 70 to 80 percent that's interested but concerned. Small children, the elderly, the demographic, the 65 to 75 here in the Netherlands cycles more than any other 16% of people with disabilities cycle, not necessarily on a bicycle, but on a tricycle or a hand cycle. Cycling is the great equalizer and increasingly so now with electric bicycles, of course, but we shouldn't see it as something that the fit, the brave, the hunched and helmeted do. It is something that virtually anybody can do, but we have to slow the cars, tame the cars and create that space for those people to get out on their own two or three wheels. Lindsay, I want to dig into a few things. You talk about building for moderate income households. Well, what about everybody else? Don't we need deeply affordable housing? And do we think that people will actually want to live car-free? I think you just summed up about a thousand conversations I've had, which is the reaction can be, no one will want to live there, immediately followed by, they'll be far too expensive. And I'm like, well, which is it? Will everyone want to live there and it'll drive up the prices? Or will no one want to live there and everything will sell for pennies? And I think that there is an untapped market for car-free housing that we don't even know what the market is. But the research is pretty compelling. The National Association of Realtors just had a study, and I think 72% of people will pay more to live in a walkable neighborhood. And the numbers are off the charts for Gen Z. 92% of Gen Zers will pay more to live in a walkable neighborhood, and 60% of them don't want to own a car. Half of 20-year-olds don't have a license. So there's this whole new world coming where I know groups of five friends who share one car. I think this is how young people want to live. We're seeing professionals living without a car and just Ubering places. They stay in shape by walking and riding their bike places. Sometimes taking an Uber out to meet friends is better. You don't have to pay for valet parking and you don't have to drive after drinking. 
We know from what AARP says that many seniors outlive their ability to drive by seven to 10 years. That means the last 10 years of their life, they're isolated, they're stuck unless they live in a walkable community. And we don't really have this typology in America. We don't have neighborhoods that are truly walkable and bikeable where you can just hop on a trike and feel completely comfortable with your 10-year-old biking to school. And I think it's untapped. I think we don't know the answer of how many people would want to live this way. Well, what's that place down in Florida, the villages, the over 55 community where everyone goes and they drive around golf carts? Yeah, it's 100,000 people. There's Um, no reason that we couldn't adapt that plan in sections of Los Angeles and sections of Portland and sections of San Francisco and sections of New York City and sections of Cincinnati. I so agree. And one of the coolest ideas that came our way recently was this idea of taking public right-of-ways and creating bike towns. And bike towns are just communities where there are no cars. It's purpose-built, car-free communities, and they are building them. And there's one in Tempe, Arizona. It's called Cul-de-Sac. It's for people who want to live car-free. It's sort of come into the zeitgeist recently because of the Biden administration. They put all this money in the Inflation Reduction Act to take down freeways, to dismantle freeways. And so this started a national conversation around, well, what freeways should we be taking down? And it turns out that Los Angeles has all these stubs, these half-built freeways. They started to build them, and then the neighbors got organized and stopped them, the I-90, They built three miles of a 50-mile freeway, and they just stopped. And that freeway could be 15,000 units of car-free housing on free land. That's the advantage of building on a free public right-of-way. But everything always circles back to mobility and how high quality do we want the mobility to be? Because we're asking people to live without cars. It's important, Lindsay, that I think people hear, we're not trying to take cars away from everybody. We just want to create a space for the people who choose to be without a car to have a safe place to be without a car. Exactly. Anybody who's living on a living wage, full-time employment can live in a car-free LCI. And if we're going to create housing without parking, which we have to, how good do we need the mobility for it to work? And do we want to give people low-quality mobility or high-quality mobility? Because there really isn't medium-quality mobility. It either works or it doesn't. Mobility is an on-off switch, and we know that either it's a bus system or tram system that everybody uses, your Tokyo, right? It's walkable like Vienna, everybody walks. It's bikeable like Amsterdam, and everybody uses it. So this goes back to what Brett Atencio Thomas was saying on the show a couple of weeks ago, that if we want to get from 1% to 8% or from 8% people using mobility to 80% of people using mobility, we have to build safe infrastructure. But we know if it's car-free, it's 80%. And we know if there are poor quality intersections, it's 8%. The difference between 8% and 80% is climate change. We have to get people out of cars for traffic, for air quality, for climate. The 15-minute city solves all of these things at the same time. And the key to bikes in a 15-minute city is slowing down the cars. Exactly. When you take the cars off, 80% of people will bike. City of Utrecht, 90% of people will bike because it's a medieval city. There's almost no cars. I feel like we keep trying to cut corners. We keep trying to split the baby and have it both ways. And I think we really need to hold ourselves accountable to what we know works and look around and say, it's not working in LA. It's not working in most cities in America. Okay, well, what does work? And we know what works. If you take the cars off, it works. 
And if people are going to choose to live where they don't drive, why wouldn't we give them amazing mobility? Car-free streets is amazing mobility. Take the cars off and overnight you get walking, you get biking, you get golf carts. And just imagine any commercial street near you, car-free with trees and flowers and people and coffee carts and Christmas tree lights and those colorful umbrellas. And we know people want to live this way. People need to live this way. For all the reasons we've talked about, I think we need to face down. Can we give up a few streets? Does every street also have to be a freeway? Can we give it over a few miles and think about pedestrianizing them? And maybe we phase it in. You go to 50 miles an hour, then nine miles an hour. Maybe it's car-free weekends. If there's any case we want to make, it's for pedestrianizing a few streets and just try it. We can always go back. You can always put cars back. (laughs) But if you had a beautiful car-free street with trees and bougainvillea and Christmas tree lights and benches and alfresco and people and lots of shops, why wouldn't you just add housing? If you build it, they will come. I think they will. Well, Lindsay, I hope you will come back on Bike Talk again next week. (laughs) Because there are so many issues that we talked about today that we will keep talking about on Bike Talk because until we start building infrastructure that supports 60, 70% of the population to get out of their cars, people are not going to get out of their cars. What's the website for LCI? It's the livablecommunitiesinitiative.com. Great. Lindsay Sturman, thanks for being on Bike Talk. Thanks, Taylor. One of the things that's keeping livable cities from being developed is having enough politicians on board to understand that we need safe streets if we want to get mobility out there. And if we want mobility and we want housing, we have to have leadership. So here with us is Christian Milneal. He's a writer with Massachusetts Streets Blog. Hey, Christian. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. And you wrote an article. The polls are in. Hating bike lanes is not a winning electoral strategy. Yeah. Which, for some reason, needs to be said. It was an election year in Massachusetts. This year's election was mostly municipal races. So lots of town council, city council, school board races, no statewide races in this year's cycle. And in the lead up to the election, I got several requests from readers asking me to cover some outrageous candidates who were saying outrageous things about street safety projects, bike lanes. In most cases, in a few cases, people are upset about bus lanes. I'm curious, what were they saying, Christian? We had a couple of folks in Boston running on the platform that they were going to tear out all the new bike and bus lanes that the city's been installing in recent years, which has been a major platform of Mayor Wu's administration. Mayor Wu's been in office now for about a year and a half and has been implementing safe streets projects at a faster pace than many of her predecessors did in the city of Cambridge, which is right across the river from Boston and where a lot of the big universities are like Harvard and MIT. Cambridge is even more aggressive in installing new bike lanes, especially in the last two years. They actually passed an ordinance saying that the city had to install protected bike lanes on most of its major streets within the next five years. So a number of candidates were running on a platform to repeal that ordinance or to at least try to slow things down. And then in other parts of the state, too, like in the central Massachusetts city of Worcester, which is the state's second largest city and quite a bit different from Boston, much more working class, does not have a very well-organized advocacy community of safe streets people, although there are... Yeah, we call uh, that the bike lobby. Yeah, right. 
<laughs> yeah, right. A very nascent bike lobby in Worcester, although there is one and it is growing and it's getting momentum. But even in Worcester, which doesn't have that many bike lanes, there was a candidate who tried to make it a campaign issue. I'm just one person as the editor of Streets Blog, Massachusetts, so I could not actually write about all these people and all their issues. But I was sort of keeping track of where these people were running and where they were campaigning like this. So when the election results on Wednesday morning, lo and behold, most of these extreme candidates who are taking these very extreme positions against street safety projects, most of them lost. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I guess I would say with a caveat that these are local races and there are lots of different issues that people are running on. And the people who sort of seized on bike lanes as problems that needed to be ripped out of the city streets also tended to be candidates who were just advocating for a lot of really extreme positions that were not in line with the average Massachusetts voters. So a number of them were anti-vaxxers. Some of them actually had restraining orders against some people. I would not ascribe too much of it to the fact that they were opposed to bike lanes. I think the fact that they were opposed to bike lanes is sort of symptomatic about other things in their personalities that makes them unelectable. (laughs) Is there like a syndrome, you think? Well, for instance, Mayor Wu came into office a couple of years ago. She's the first woman mayor of Boston, as far as I know. She's a woman of color. So for a long time, Boston was run by old white Irish guys. And now we have Mayor Wu, who looks much different from the people who traditionally ran Boston. And that drives a lot of people crazy, (laughs) maybe literally. So there are a lot of people who sort of seize on the bike lanes as something that's very tangible that Mayor Wu has been doing that has been changing the way their city looks in a very visible way, or bus lanes, for instance. And there are specific projects, like there's a big project that the city is implementing right now in West Roxbury, which is historically the most conservative neighborhood in Boston. It's way out on the western fringe of the city, a very suburban area. But it's Main Street, a street called Center Street, has traditionally been a four-lane street where there was a lot of dangerous driving happening. And for years and years, there have been proposals to traffic calm Center Street and turn it into a calmer three-lane street with protected bike lanes. Mayor Wu actually pulled the trigger and said, we are going to do this. The current street design is objectively dangerous. We cannot tolerate this any longer. And it's being implemented right now. And a lot of people in West Roxbury absolutely hate it. And there have been protests. And if you go to the protests, it's not just about the bike lanes. There are people are waving the yellow don't tread on me Tea Party flags. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that's sort of wrapped into this. So I think bike lanes and bus lanes are sort of a symbol that people are latching onto where especially conservative voters are very upset about seeing their cities and towns change in this visible way. Well, Christian, that brings up a question. Do you see it as a left right issue a little bit or not? No, because a lot of Massachusetts politicians are very, quote unquote, liberal. We have an overwhelmingly Democratic majority in the state house and in local races. So there are lots of liberals who also don't like bike lanes, represent sort of the establishment. And some of them are upset about this, too. I think the difference is that there are people who are interested in challenging the status quo. And that's definitely a subset of the politicians who consider themselves liberal, right? And it's the people who are actually questioning the conventional wisdom and willing to stick out their necks and make actual changes to make streets safer, or in the case of affordable housing, to make housing more affordable and invite more neighbors into these cities. Those are the people who are taking risks. And in this last election anyway, it seems like those risks have actually been worthwhile for them and successful for them. 
Right. We did a segment with co-host Lindsay and Taylor about how housing ties into mobility and bikes and transit. And it seems like there was a connection between bike lanes and affordable housing over transit in this election. Definitely. Yeah. In the city of Cambridge, that's a huge issue right now. So Cambridge is the city, again, just north of Boston. It's a pretty big city in its own right, about 120,000 people, but 30% of Cambridge residents are students at the universities. So Cambridge is not by any means a comparable city to any other place in America, right? right? So maybe places, right. something like Berkeley, very much a college town, very quote unquote progressive, but there's a real interesting dynamic where a lot of the establishment politicians in Cambridge have been very resistant for a long time to actually building affordable housing. So you'd have this very transient student population that generally didn't vote in local elections and then could not afford to stay in Cambridge once they finished studying. And we're seeing more and more organizers say Cambridge should be a more welcoming place and actually create affordable housing. Cambridge has amazing bike infrastructure, amazing access to the MBTA subway system, but ordinary people cannot afford to live there. And I think increasingly there's awareness that that's a problem. And I think both organizers are getting better at mobilizing and organizing the student population there to make sure they get out and vote because that's a very potentially powerful voting block. But I also see sort of a generational shift where the sort of progressive philosophy is becoming more aware that, oh, this city actually does have to be more inclusive if we're going to live up to our values. You said it's not a left-right thing, but there's this anti-15-minute city conspiracy thing. I don't know if it's left-right, but the 15-minute city combines housing, combines mobility, and then it unites the opponents who seem to be this cluster of anti-vax, the whole MAGA. Right. Yeah. And there was definitely one candidate who ran for Boston City Council and finished dead last to subscribe to that conspiracy theory. I'm generally of the opinion that we shouldn't pay too much attention to stuff that's that crazy. Right. Right. <laughs> I'm curious if any of the candidates that ran and won used data from the year and a half or two years that Mayor Wu has been in there that proves that the infrastructure changes are working, are making the streets safer, are lowering congestion or anything like that. There is some pretty encouraging data. A lot of Mayor Wu's projects are still too new to have a very robust statistical track record, but some of the early signs are very encouraging. I think one of the more interesting case studies was in Worcester, which is the central Massachusetts city, generally much more working class. They had been planning and are actually now implementing a road diet on one of their major roadways on the west side of the city through a very suburban neighborhood. And it had been a four-lane speedway, basically expressway through like a residential suburban neighborhood. And that became sort of a flashpoint in one of the local city council elections there. And the relatively new incumbent who hadn't been on the council for that long really staked her reputation on saying, we need a safer street here. There are too many crashes. People's lives are being threatened. And her opponent didn't really come out that strongly against it, but sort of tried to challenge the project on procedural grounds, saying there hadn't been enough public outreach. But I think voters, to their credit, saw through that and said, no, this is actually something that we feel is very important. And Worcester is a relatively dangerous city in terms of street safety. There are a lot of crashes there. There are a much higher rate of crashes than in the greater Boston area. So I think in Worcester, that's definitely not the sort of liberal paradise that Cambridge, Massachusetts is. Worcester is still overwhelmingly democratic, but in the working class democratic sense. Right. But a lot of those elected officials have really embraced street safety, too, and understand that voters want to have safer streets and that things need to change. Well, it's great to hear that street safety is a winning issue. 
Yeah, it makes sense, right? It's amazing that it's 2023 <laughs> and it's taken us this long to get there. People yeah. always complain about lack of outreach when you talk about putting in a bike lane on a street, but when they spend a billion dollars to widen the freeway that goes through your town, no one even goes to a meeting or no one's even aware of the meeting. So I'm glad that that argument didn't stand. Yeah. And I think I'm seeing increasingly elected officials and also people like public works directors and city employees are actually taking bolder stances to say this four lane street is not safe, that this is an obsolete design and we need to change things. And I think when you hear that from a politician, it's one thing, but when you hear it from your public works director or <laughs> someone who you've seen in city hall or town hall for decades, it sort of captures a different audience, I think. And I see that as really effective. I live in Los Angeles, and we're starting to see that here also with assembly members like Laura Friedman. They're starting to speak up about these issues. A quote that I always love is that the bicycle doesn't solve any one problem by itself, but it's a part of many solutions. And I think that people are starting to wise up to that. It's a part of transit and mobility, but also housing and equity issues. And so I'm glad that you wrote the article. I'm glad that those politicians are starting to win. Yeah. And actually, that's a good point, too, because even though a lot of these projects are creating bike lanes, they're being pitched as more holistic safety improvement projects. So when you go from four lanes to three lanes and create room for a protected bike lane, you're not only creating space for the bike lane, you're also shortening the distance on the crosswalks. You're reducing the risk of sideswipe crashes if you're in a car. It's easier to make left turns if you're in a car. I think a lot of people latch onto the bike lanes, but it's right. really creating all sorts of ancillary yeah. safety benefits for everybody else on the streets. I think the more yeah. we can talk less about bike lanes and more about street safety, the better off we are. Do you think that these wins represent just a growing awareness in people or is it because Mayor Wu did so much work or because the advocates in Cambridge really worked hard on making a difference? I think it's all those things. I think Mayor Wu embraced these issues because there's been so much advocacy around them in recent years. And I think we're seeing more awareness among the general public and voters because of the advocates and because of elected leaders like Mayor Wu. And now we're seeing more elected officials in places like Worcester and Springfield and all these other cities who are also learning about these issues and learning about the benefits. And one of the reasons I want to do this story is to say, look, if you're an elected official, it's worth the risk to stake your reputation on improving street safety because it's actually pretty popular with voters. And I think the more we can talk about it that way, that these actually aren't that controversial. This is actually a winning strategy if you're a politician. I think that will help everybody. It will help cultivate more elected leaders who are willing to take risks on that. And it will get us more safer streets, which is also a huge selling point. The more people experience these streets, the more people can understand that it's a huge improvement for their cities. Absolutely. Any other of your stories you want to direct us to while you're here, Christian? There's actually a story I just put up today about the city of Worcester designing its first major permanent protected bike lane. They're redesigning a mile of one of their four-lane roadways. It's called Chandler Street to go on a road diet and include protected bike lanes. It's up on the homepage right now. The Worcester City Council election didn't really change a lot. It mostly re-elected their incumbents, but the city's been hiring a new transportation department, and they're really focused on street safety and implementing more of these projects. So again, I think Worcester is a super interesting city because it's not in the Boston area. It's not really a place where you would expect to see a renaissance of safe streets, but they're really embracing a lot of these ideas. And I think the elected officials who are on board are helping it along too. Well, let's hope that that bike lane connects to other bike lanes 
so that people it can won't use right it now it'll be the first have. one in the city but yeah you got to start somewhere <laughs> great great well christian milneal thanks for the article and thanks for coming on bike talk yeah thanks for having me that was christian milneal writer for streets blog massachusetts he wrote the article the polls are in hating bike lanes is not a winning electoral strategy <laughs> i love that This is Stacy with a bike thought. It's Thanksgiving, and I just wanted to give thanks to all of you who are listening and care about biking. Here in the United States, we are a very car-centric culture. We have built new cities around motor vehicles and have contorted our old cities to them as well. Nearly all of us are trapped in cars to a certain degree. Even if you currently bike just as a hobby or for exercise, I hope that you will consider making more of your local trips by bike. What can you fit in a backpack? Could you put a rack on your bike and attach some panniers to it to carry more? Maybe consider an e-bike if you have long distances to cover or hills on your routes. And if you're already an experienced bike hauler, please send your pics to livebiketalk at gmail.com so we can show all that can be done by bike. Again, that's livebiketalk at gmail.com. The more we ride and the less we drive, the better that we, our cities, and the planet will be. Thank you for biking. And that's the show. Another one bites the dust. There you go. Bike Talk is giving voice to change. And so if you like the show, support us on Patreon if you're able to. Like us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, X. You know, I'm going to stick with Twitter, okay? I'm going to just call it Twitter. Yeah. Like us on Twitter. Can you like on Twitter or do you retweet on Twitter? You can do both. You can do both. Okay. It really makes a difference. And if you have a question or a topic for a future episode, reach out to us at biketalk.org. Thanks, Taylor. And take us out with a bike quote. (laughs) Charles M. Schultz, the creator of Peanuts. Life is like a 10-speed bicycle. Most of us have gears we never use. So true. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedal, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on the seat, put your feet on the pedal, and run all around, run all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat.